You're listening to Rick Flynn. With a shout out from London Town, it's Rick Flynn presents. Now, ladies and gentlemen, your MC for the affair, Rick Flynn. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome on in. Come on, we've been waiting for you. Here is a gentleman on an interview that has taken months, one of those that has taken a long time to get into fruition, if you will, because he is in California. I am in Cincinnati. And this young man has been a part of my career, indelibly etched into my mind, my body, my heart. I will never forget ever the days when I was a young DJ. I was in my 20s. I was doing extremely well, so well that they actually put me on radio on 50,000 watt FM radio. The station is still active in Cincinnati. It's now number one in the market. So a lot of people heard it. We had a great time. And one of the questions I asked at the time they brought me in, because I had played so much music in the nightclub as a drummer, back when I did thousands of gigs where we trucked in equipment to ballrooms of the hotels and worked with all kinds of people. I asked them on radio, listen, I played so much music. I'll play music for you here on the air, but may I please do, if you don't mind, a talk show. And they say, you know what? That's a great idea. Let's do that. And they allowed me to produce the show. And lo and behold, one day I produced a show and I thought maybe Reggie would come in because the buzz around Cincinnati was this hot group called Midnight Star. And lo and behold, Reggie Calloway, you showed up with the entire band. And remember, we recorded the show at my home studio. Do you have any remembrance of any of that? Oh, man. I remember I remember the hair in those. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but uh, what, what, what great days. And, and, and we appreciate you so much for, for your support and the support of, of course, Cincinnati. What can we say uh, means, means the world to us. So uh, we've really been blessed. Well, I'll tell you this. You had your whole band with you, and you were promoting at that time an album which the single, and I played that single, I've Been Watching You. Oh, yes. Yeah, from the album, Standing Together. Now, that was on Solar Records, right? That's correct. And that was our uh, second album. The first album was called The Beginning. And uh, Standing Together... Uh, just personified where we were at the time in terms of not giving up, not giving in, not giving out. Right. And you had your brother, Vincent, who uh, joined Midnight Star, and he designed the costumes, the warrior-style costumes you had on that album cover for Standing Together. And he actually... uh, uh, has been helping you and your partner for years in a group that you later formed called the Callaways. Yes, um, we had a lot of a, a lot of help with the costumes uh, in terms of uh, you know artwork and design. Our our costume designer actually did the glove for Michael Jackson, and she was so so famous. It's Ruthie West uh, did a lot of our costume work and. Uh, so my mother, Glory Larson, was instrumental in helping to pick out things. But uh, that particular album, each each outfit was was tailored to the, the individual's person's look and style and, and image. And we just had so much fun with that. And your late mother, she actually was the group's manager, I, I believe. Is that true? Yes, she was. She was a manager of the group. And we also had a co-managers of uh, Ron Mosley on one of our earlier projects and uh, and then uh, the 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 late Ron Mosley and then also the late Pablo Davis uh, came in years years later, uh, right before the No Parking album, and was really instrumental in uh, you know taking taking us to the next level and getting the very best out of Solar Records and 
and touring and all this uh, great sort of thing. So it's been a team, a team work all along the way. Well, I'll tell you, Solar, S-O-L-A-R, means Sound of L.A. Records. because yeah, sound, I, of, sound of Los Angeles Records. Sound of yes. uh, Los Angeles Records. And mm-hmm. Reggie, I like darn near everything. They used to give me 12-inch dance singles. And nearly every one that they would promote to me was a good record. And Midnight Star was right in there. And that's how I became acquainted with your band. And meeting you and meeting the rest of the group was just, uh, it's something that having you on my show, I remember you were promoting that single I just mentioned, I've Been Watching You. And you actually had the band uh, create a drop that we used at the nightclub for the uh-huh. intro for the intro of I've been watching you and you would sing a little bit of it and then boom the needle would hit the record and we would go and play the actual dance tune and thousands of people heard that and it would fill up the dance floor and I've been watching you later it, it hit the charts and it was just a precursor, if you will, of what was to come. Because we could do this entire show right now on nothing but Midnight Star if we had to. Because you did hit after hit. Midnight Star was was a fabulous Cincinnati-based band. Well, we want to thank you. You know, we, we come from a, a, a great tradition of, of um, you know, trying to make great music in, uh, in, in Cincinnati. You know, we had the models of, of James Brown, not too far down the road, the Ohio player. Uh, just found out that Kuna Gang was from Youngstown, Ohio, uh, the brothers. It's just uh, the OJs. I mean, uh, it, was, it was a basin of music that, that really inspired and something to live up to. You know, our, our band, uh, we became based in Cincinnati. Uh, actually, you know, of course, my brother and I from Cincinnati. Uh, we had two from Louisville, Kentucky, Belinda and, and Gant. And uh, two from Indianapolis, Indiana, Jeff and Bill, two from Flint, Michigan, Melvin and Bo. So we were a very universal band. And then we later brought in uh, Bobby Lovelace out of Atlanta, who um, who's still with the group today. So it, it takes it takes a it takes a village, it takes a world, it takes a strong community. But, but Cincinnati took care of us because when we had no place to perform, you know, we had great places like. Uh, like the palm room to go down and set up and, you know, and play almost whenever we wanted to. And, uh, you know, different uh, functions that uh, went on in the city, we were able to, to be there and, you know, open for other stars. And so what, what, what a town. The palm room is a uh, very, very high class uh, room, which is at what was at that time called the Omni Netherland hotel in Cincinnati, right down, yes. right, right off of Fountain Square. Presidents of the United States have stayed there at that hotel. It is one of these marble and uh, uh, cement and high quality, expensive marble and chandelier hotels with a marvelous jazz type venue. Traditionally, was the Palm Room. And I imagine being a horn player yourself, were you playing the jazz or were you playing the dance at that time because the disco and the dance music was so hot? Uh, well, uh, for my brothers and I, um, we got great exposure from, um, you know, also Mr. Kelly's, but also the Viking Lounge is where we cut our jazz chops. And that was before Midnight Star. So right after going off to college, I came home and uh, we formed our group Sunchild, which was my brother Gregory and Vincent and myself and uh, Johnny Jones and Ruben Jordan, also Daryl Calloway at one time on bass. Uh, so we uh, had a great run at the Viking Lounge. It was so great that uh, Milt Howard asked us to open and also to be the backup band for Sonny Stitt. Uh, we, we accepted that offer and, and played behind Sonny Stitt for, for two weeks, uh, you know, doing our show on the first set, his show on the second set, and then closing it out. And it was so well well received. I met a, uh, a young lady there named PJ Watts from New York. And she wanted to do a, a showcase for, for Sunchild in New York. But the group shortly broke up, broke, broke up 
and I went back to college that fall and said, I want to put together one of the greatest groups of all time that's not going to break up, that's going to stay together, you know, not just be a summer band or a fall band. And that was Midnight Star. So the Palm Room, uh, once we uh, relocated from Louisville, Kentucky and Frankfort, Kentucky, uh, where we were at Kentucky State, we moved into my mother's house in Cincinnati. And during that time, um, we had been invited to be seen by Dick Griffey, president of Solar Records. He flew in to hear us, and that audition was at the Palm Room in the middle of the daytime with nobody in the building or in the room except for us and Dick Griffey. And, uh, you know, we began to perform a whole hour set for him. And, and that's how our, our meeting began to blossom, and uh, we followed up with another audition in. Uh, Las Vegas, at the Air Force in Las Vegas, uh, Mr. Griffey had said that uh, you guys are awesome, but, you know, so like, he says, I want to be quite frank. It's like one harmony's missing. There's one note missing. And we didn't want to tell him at the time that, that Bill had been uh, experiencing a, an injury, a hospitalization that would not allow him to perform. And uh, Bill was our saxophone player and also some some background vocals, so that was definitely a harmony there that, that uh, Griffey was perceiving. He said, "I want to see you again." After I told him that story, and uh, and we saw us again in Las Vegas. Bill was totally healthy. Uh, instead of an empty room, it was a packed room of uh, airmen and air ladies, and uh, we turned the place out. And at the end of the show, he says, uh, "Would you guys like to sign with my little record label?" And we said, "Sure." <laughs> and they say the rest is history. And he associated a lot including, I think, in his label, Solar Records. Uh, didn't Don Cornelius, that owned Soul Train, have something to do with that, too? See, initially it was uh, a partnership between Dick Griffey and Don Cornelius called Soul Train Records. And uh, when they had uh, decided to go separate ways, it was like, Don, you keep the TV show, and uh, Dick Griffey, you take the label. So he broke off and formed Solar Records. Okay, now I understand. Now I got it. With Midnight Star, you, by virtue of nothing but good production, and you know, when I was in the studio a lot with Roger Troutman, he used to say to me, uh, Rick, you like that clean sound, that clean, clean sound. That's what Roger called it. And I'm telling you, Reggie Calloway, the clean sound, the way I used to tell Roger I liked it was because when you're a DJ in the club and you're doing that New York style where you want to go from one record to another record and you want something there to mix so that when those records change, the audience has no idea it's a new record. And Midnight Star was putting out quality intros like that, which were so easy for us DJs to work. And other than the quality of the actual lyric, the quality of the vocal, uh, quality of the instruments, which, of course, Midnight Star had down, you had that clean sound. And now, am I the first that's ever told you that, or is that deliberate? Well, we, uh, you know, we loved great music and, and uh, great sound and records, and we wanted to pursue that and learn how to make those type of records. So when Dick Griffey signed us, he said, who do you want to produce the record? The first thing that came to my mind was, what does a, what does a producer do? <laughs> so I didn't really didn't really know. And uh, I was like, you know, we make our own records. <laughs> we need... <laughs> it's, no, you need a producer. So uh, in that same vein, you know, we, we loved Earth, Wind & Fire. We loved... Uh, modern jazz and uh, contemporary jazz and uh, being very musically orientated in terms of, you know, studying classical and, and studying jazz and, and just being a student of music. You know, we wanted a high quality of sound, but we wanted to preserve a level of, of, of funk, which Earth, Wind & Fire definitely ex exemplified, you know, Earth, Wind & Fire, Coon, the Gang, Ohio Players. It was always a, a mixture of jazz and funk. So we, we've fallen in that tradition so we chose harvey mason for our first album based upon he was a great studio drummer he had also worked with bands before and uh he was just a credible uh musician so to learn how to record tracks we thought we could get for him and that association was proven to be true because harvey introduced us to some of the greatest musicians and engineers and arrangers 
to Los Angeles. So that first album at the beginning was was an amazing, uh, you know, dive into sound. You know, I learned it from Harvey how to record tracks, how to record drums, you know, how to layer, you know, you do the rhythm track, you do the orchestration, the strings and the horns and how to put all those things together. Uh, from there, we went to uh, Leon Silvers, who upon our first album, the Griffey says, I like the album, but I think you need one more hit. And uh, we put together a demo for him that uh, Bo had written called uh, Make It Last. And uh, Griffey says, I think that's it. After hearing it, acapella with suitcases, pots and pans, no instruments, just voices. <laughs> so we said, I think you guys uh, would be great if I had Leon Silvers, this new young producer, work with you. We think you like him. And uh, Leon was awesome and learned more from Leon about uh, you know, how to layer vocals and uh, how to actually make hit songs you know, picking the strongest groove and putting the strongest melody together with it. So all that training um, led up to uh, getting a shot, you know, to produce ourselves. Leon had to go on tour with his group, Dynasty, and he, he left me in charge to to finish the record. Uh, that that was and that was the uh, Standing Together album. That uh, and then um, that led to to Griffey saying, well, you know, why don't you guys go back to Cincinnati? And, uh, you know, just make the record yourself, the entire record. And that was the third album, Victory. And we did that at Fifth Floor Studios right in Cincinnati, Ohio, right where Roger would, and Zap would record. The Ohio Players would record uh, Bootsy Collins. So it was that home, homegrown funk studio. So ironically, we're, we're making uh, that clean music that you were talking about. And Roger sticks his head in the studio because it's time for them to come in now. And he says... Uh, Hey, you guys, I, I see y'all still making that pretty music. Keep making that pretty music. But that was the cold word for making making clean music while he was making funk. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, he was correct on that. And later, Midnight Star developed into what I would call the techno disco or techno sound. And instead of Roger Troutman's signature talk box, which he used, Midnight Star became known as an act that was not afraid on such records as, for example, Operator, uh, Electricity, and many others. You would use what is called a vocorder. Now, uh, when did the use of the vocorder come in there in your career? Yeah, so... um I was on one of my trips to Los Angeles. I came back to our, to our home there in Avondale, and uh, my road crew guys were telling me about uh, some of my fraternity brothers that had come by the house, and they were mentioning this word freakazoid. And I said, freakazoid? I said, that's, that's a hip right there. So I gathered Vincent, my brother, and also Bill, and said, we're going we're gonna to go out to the garage right now and, and put this, this song together. You know, I had come up with the, the basic beat, and uh, it was it was so uh, it, it became you know the first techno funk song as it was later coined. So once the track was completed, in terms of a demo, then it became you know, you know what's the melody, what's the sounds, and Vincent had been toying with some ideas. We didn't have a vocoder, uh, but he had created a a telephone sound where uh, which we later used in the operator video where you take the telephone apart and uh, you know you make it sound like a an, an operator or or an electronic voice so and trying to figure out how did we do this and we discovered oh we can do that with a vocoder so uh, at this point uh, we began to invest in a lot of uh, electronic keyboards and different sounds that uh, we didn't have before you know before we only had a a Fender Rose and a clavinet, but now there's all type of synthesizers and uh, different gear that creates all this electronic sound. And that uh, that vocoder that Vincent mastered, that's the voice on Freakazoid and an operator, and many of those songs, uh, you know, carried us to a, a new level. So it was right what the doctor ordered right at the time. We were, we were able to add back into the sound some of that dirt that uh, Roger was talking about, and uh, you know, bring the funk back alive and. Uh, the funk became so alive that, you know, they began to emulate us. So everything has its own time. <laughs> Boy, isn't that the truth. Now, even one of, as far as I'm concerned, your most well-known 
And in Cincinnati, I can't speak for the rest of the world, but in Cincinnati, your band was on fire with a song called No Parking on the Dance Floor. And that had a vocoder in it. Correct. Yeah, that that song was, uh, you know, when you look at everyday life and you pick the titles out of the air, you know, where can you go and not see a no parking sign? And uh, when Bobby Lovelace brought that that idea of no parking on the dance floor, it was obvious. And by this time, we had already kind of created our, our sound because, uh, in other words, Freakazoid uh, opened up doors to, to no parking, to, to electricity, uh, to operator, you know, that whole uh, techno funk sound. So it was just a really uh, a beautiful blessing to to get that groove going, and it was so big that even the barcades began to copy us. And we was like, <laughs> like, like this is this is fun. We're we're setting we're making history. You said to an interviewer once. You said if it doesn't, and I'm paraphrasing. I can't remember your exact words, but you said if it doesn't sound like a hit to you. It's not going to sound like a hit to them. And I'm telling you what, no parking was a hit as far as I'm concerned. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Uh, and that's, uh, I was talking to another friend about that the other day, and he told me something that I had said similar about uh, having confidence. And it's one thing to be cocky, but it's another thing to do everything you possibly can do to build a level of confidence, knowing that you've checked off all the checks, you've dotted all the I's, you've crossed all the T's, and you've made that music and that song as perfect as you possibly can without uh, constricting it. So how do you keep it dirty, funky, and loose, but yet make it clean and sparkle? And and that's kind of what the Midnight Star sound or the Callaway sound uh, is, is all about. And we're going to get to the Callaway sound in, in just a moment, but... I wanted to say, you know, people often say, Rick, boy, you sure have a lot of stories. And I would hope so. I've known you for 40, 40 years, even though you split into uh, over to California and I, I lost a contact with you, much the same as I did when George Clooney was in town, because, you know, I used to know him. He went to California and that was w the last time I've uh, seen him. But occasionally I bump into his mom and dad and I'll tell them to say hello. But you had the, um, you invited me once after the radio interview we did and when you appeared on my show in Cincinnati. You said, come on up and hear us. We've got a gig and we're going to be playing up in Dayton at a place called Weggerson Gardens. Do you remember that? Not at, not at all. But it, I hope it was. I hope it was an outdoor fun gig. No, it was. I well, I, I they had an indoor uh, venue for it, and then they had an outdoor venue. I mean, in the the formal gardens part. I believe this particular gig might have been indoors, and the reason I bring it up is because I remember I went to hear the band. And you were all there. You were all playing. And they had used some risers that were about eh, two and a half feet, no more than three feet up above the ground, uh, the floor, to create the stage. And I was sitting there, and I, st I think it was Kenny Gant. Uh, uh, he played bass, didn't he? Yes. Uh -huh. I was looking at Kenny and he was kind of starting to rock side by side. And <laughs> I kept hearing this squeaking like metal on metal. And then all of a sudden, it was right either at the end of one of your songs or, or during the break. But all of a sudden, I hear, boom! And that darn riser, the it was old and squeaky, and the legs gave way. And Kenny Gant... He had such a balance on his body, he never <laughs> fell. He stayed upright, and he went three feet down when that when that uh, riser collapsed. And you came right up to me right after that because you were concluding the gig, and you said, "Hey, uh, Rick, uh, you're going to have to come and hear the band play sometime." <laughs> 
that's, that's, that's a good one. That is yeah. my Reggie Calloway story. You, do you have any idea? You don't even remember that gig, do you? I have to be honest. I, I know, but but I, but I do remember stage collapsing, so that's, that's probably what I remember. That was but, Weggerson Garden in Dayton, and I was the, your special guest. And when people ask me about funny things that have happened, I tell them the story of Midnight Star and the collapsing uh, riser. But the amazing part of it is why Gant didn't go sideways and go flying. Yeah, he Gant's, stayed he's a, up he's there. An amazing, uh, he's an amazing athlete. You know, he's a, a really great basketball player and uh, and, and runs, runs distance. And, but the whole band, uh, you know, we trained. You know, uh, daily we would run three miles before rehearsal. Stretch, and, uh, uh, Vincent, uh, Grandmaster Vincent, who's a, he's also a Grandmaster in martial arts now. My brother uh, led us in uh, calisthenics, and he walk on our stomachs. But uh, I mean, we did a gig where Belinda fell off the stage down into the orchestra pit while doing slow jam. Was your you're the only female in the band, right? Right. She she gets up and continues to sing, and and then Bo jumps down into the to the pit with her and and we commenced to finish in slow jam and the crowd is going absolutely nuts <laughs> oh and now there is another midnight star sensation slow jam we had the ohio players at one time and sugar went up to dayton to hear well it wasn't actually the ohio players they were in transition and I don't know if you recall, but four of them uh, went out on their own, Sugar, Diamond, Chet, and the young one, Darwin Dorch, who was playing the bass at the time. And they were called the Players Band. Right. And they used to sing the song Slow Jam. What? I have oh. it. I have it on video here. I what swear to you. Wow. Yeah. And then Sugar... Uh, you know how sugar would be. And then on a slow jam, ow, ow. <laughs> you know what I mean? He put his own two cents worth in it. Yeah, you had it. Let's hear it. I got to hear that, man. You got to get that to me some kind of way. I want to see that. Uh, it's on beta, <laughs> Reggie. I, uh -oh. I, I've got a beta player around here somewhere. And, uh, you, better get a, you better get a transfer in before they don't make it anymore. Oh yeah, no. I think I yeah, don't make it anymore right now. But uh, yeah, I think yeah. I still have a Sony uh, Beta in very good shape. It's just it's with all my road equipment, and we're we're when you get our age, Reggie, you got to downsize. So I'm gonna have to go rooting through a lot of things to get it. But well, yeah, the storage in Cincinnati that's that's got to be uh, close to 20 years old. So I got I got to get back there quick and no, I know. I know what you mean. You know, I was talking to Judge Maybelline for our Christmas party show, and like we talked about, I said, never complain about growing old. It is a privilege not granted to many. Wow. Well said. There you go. So, Reggie, many people have launched careers, as you know, and they're called in the business, and you know the business as well as anybody. They're called one-hit wonders, and they make a whole lifetime out of it. They tour, they play gigs, they people like them, they sign autographs, et cetera, et cetera. And you are not a one-hit wonder. You had hits with Midnight Star, and then came the time in your life where much to my surprise and much to the surprise of the world, I think, it was announced that Reggie and then soon thereafter, Vincent, your brother, was leaving Midnight Star. And we don't need to get into why that happened. That's nobody's business. But I wanted to tell the public when one door closes, another one opens and with the Callaways, you and your brother, that's the time in your career where you had your first ever number one hit. Or am I wrong? Oh, number one on the chart was "I Want to Be Rich." It, it actually peaked at number two on the pop charts and the top five on the R and B charts. It was number two because Prince uh, 
had written a song that was covered by uh, an, another artist, and it stayed there for like uh, you know some five crazy ten weeks. Nothing compares to you, and I'm like, would this song ever get out of the way? <laughs> but, uh, I remember we that also, song. We also had number one songs with, with Midnight Star Operator. Operator. Number one. Uh, and then in Europe, yeah. you you were charting all these over in Europe too. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So I'm sorry. I thought I thought the um, uh, the the early one uh, earlier one I just mentioned hit number one. But you know what? Number two is not bad. The Callaways, as who that was you and Vincent, and then whom whomever you selected for your studio work. Or did you both of you just play all the instruments? No, we had uh, some some incredible musicians join us on that project. Uh, some are very renowned. Uh, Jeff Lorber, famous jazz musician, uh, did some keyboard work on there. Uh, Polino De Costa, one of the most famous percussionists, was on there. Uh, another musician from Cincinnati, Tim Cornwell, Tim Bali on percussion. Uh, famous Chucky Booker. Playing keyboards on "I Want to Be Rich," uh, some artist himself. He, he now plays keys with Lionel Richie, and uh, you know some incredible uh, background singers. Uh, one of the singers was from the group Club Nouveau. The female voice that's doing the, the la 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 la. Uh, so it was just it was just powerhouse. You know, Kipper Jones, another solo artist. Uh, De Levance, another uh, solo artist on backgrounds, and then uh, of course my brother and I on leads and, and many of the other instruments. So uh, yeah, we had just uh, come off a run of four number one productions in a row. So by this time we knew, uh, you know, a lot of the, the great musicians and you know knew our way around really well. <laughs> I can name them by heart, and I know what you're saying. Well, Rick has has his notes in front of him. Rick has his computer in front of him. Reggie, I'm at a blank table. I have no notes in front of me, and my laptop computer is not even turned on. It is etched in my mind. I live the life, Reggie, to remember when they would give me at the record labels a a 12-inch, they were always 12-inch dance singles, because when you're in my position in as a hot nightclub DJ, Reggie, you want the quality for the That's crowd right. to hear. You want the quality. And I learned from Roger Troutman why those 12-inch discs always sounded so good. And the reason they did is because Roger said, Rick, the deeper the bass, the wider the groove. <laughs> That's so true. That's so well said. That is so well said. That's w- what Roger said verbatim. And I said, is that why these 12 inches that I constantly, that's all I played. It was rare that I played a uh, an album cut because on the album, you had five or six songs on one side, flip it over, five or six there, a total of 12 songs. And when you had Climax meeting in the ladies' room on a 12-inch, man, did that thing boom, you know. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, you can get, yeah, you can get um, more sound on the vinyl, as he was saying. Um, so every, every minute uh, begins to make the grooves narrower and narrower. Uh, that's why, you know, the most you can have is four or five songs per side on an album. When CDs came along, then you start seeing these, you know, 15 sides, 15 song CDs, 20 song CDs for, for the rappers because it didn't it didn't matter about the groove. Everything was digital. Yeah. So we, we missed that warm analog vinyl sound. Right. So based upon the success of Midnight Star, going over to the Callaways, word got around and you hooked up with the Supermensch, who later had a movie about his life that was on Netflix. And that was Shep Gordon. 
a major producer. And one thing I liked about Shep, and I always liked him, he had, well, first of all, he became known as rock and roll, as a rock. He hung with some of the greatest names in psychedelic rock and roll, and that that he liked. But you know what? He was never afraid to say, yes, uh, you know, I, I dabble in this rock and roll. It's been successful, but I like funky music. And that, I think, was part of a large reason that you and he got along. He liked the funk. Tell the people. Yeah, it was a, a great day meeting uh, Shep Gordon, uh, introduced to him by our business manager, Bert Padel, who did a lot of business with Shep because Shep managed Alice Cooper, Kenny Loggins, but on the R&B funk side, he managed Teddy Pendergrass. He managed Luther Vandross. So he, he turned each one of those guys into mega stars besides the fact that they were charismatic and had super uh, angelic voices, you know, blessed by God himself. He gave them a, a stage presence, you know, by designing props and, you know, working on the order of the show, getting the music in the right hands. So he was a, a, a perfect fit for us, especially uh, being able to take an act, you know, and, and, and cross that act over, meaning that not only were they the top of the charts on the R&B charts, but they were also now top of the charts on the pop charts. So that's what uh, he and Daniel Marcus and the team helped to do for, for I Want to Be Rich, which was, uh, you know, get us to the top of, of both charts seen by uh, many people building a show set uh, that we took uh, to, J to Japan uh, and around the U.S., you know, becoming, uh, you know, building building towards the, the idea of be, becoming true headliners. And that's a, a feat that's beyond just the music, beyond just the songs. It's also uh, making your fans have an experience that they never forget. Uh, the experience that he built with Alice Cooper, creating, he helped to create that image uh, and to, to build it, you know, to break down barriers uh, with, with, with Teddy Pendergrass to do the, the All Ladies Concert Series, and those kind of creative ideas. Uh, people never forget, and it becomes part of your your legacy and your your legend, so to speak. Were you quote unquote scared of producing without that familiarity that you had had all those years with your Midnight Star cohorts? I mean, did you feel nervous about it, or did you just kind of blend in and say say to your brother? Yeah, you know, this is a new phase in our life. Let's just roll with it. Wow, wow! It's a little bit of all of that, you know. Um, you know, being uh, within our Midnight Star wing, you know, we had the pleasure of, of uh, producing Climax, The Whispers, uh, some of Shalimar's things, and uh, I mean Dynasty. It uh, that training helped a lot, you know, and it was the intention to, to continue to build that. Uh, business side, you know, to where a longevity could long support the organization, not just as a band, but as a, as a business and as an organization, uh, you know, upon leaving the band, now uh, being, uh, you know, sort of naked in terms of uh, you couldn't just turn over here and say, okay, boy, here's the piano part, okay, again, here's the bass part, uh, build what you got over there, you know, where are these songs coming from? Now they all had to come uh, from from a different place, you know, and a lot uh, inside me. So there was a lot riding on it. So that first project after leaving Midnight Star was was Natalie Cole. Jumpstart. So, that was a twelve inch single they gave me that you produced. It was called Jumpstart. Yep. So you imagine uh, here you are, you know, now getting ready to work with a, a legend a legacy of her father and herself. So you fill it the whole thing, you know, and she had, uh, you know, been away from the hit scene for a while and had some, some issues that she had worked through. And here we are trying to jumpstart her career. So I initially left the, the group first and, uh, and was prepared to do all this. And then when Vincent says, okay, I'm with, I'm with you, bro. So at, at that point, 
that was 50% of the confidence right back. (laughs) (laughs) Instant, instead of instant funk on the South Soul label, Reggie had instant confidence uh, on, on Shep's team. Yes, indeed. So, uh, so it was like, okay, let's, let's get this done. We gotta, we gotta go to the wall. This, this first production, uh, has, has gotta be a hit. So on that first song, we, we recorded somewhere between four and five different versions of the groove before finally saying, this is it. So it didn't just jump right out of the box. The song jumped out of the box, you know, but then you got to put a, you got to put a groove to it. Uh, and then once we got that groove, took it to Natalie and, and met with her and uh, Jerry Griffith from the record company and uh, literally sang the song for Natalie and then with the track going on. And uh, and she got it. She liked it. So we began to go into the studio and, and put it down. It was different for her. It wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't straight up uh, R&B of the 60s and 70s that, that she may have been used to. You know, it wasn't, uh, this is it. She had to, now she had to lock to a track in another kind of way. And it, it wasn't easy for her. But it was, but once she got it, it was so easy. <laughs> she took it to a level that I would never even think of. But as far as locking those verses in, you know, we had we had to work, you know, because she was learning the song. I didn't give her a demo and say, go home and learn this because I didn't want her to get uh, stuck with something. I wanted it to be fresh so I could take it from uh, the way I heard it and also borrow from the way she delivered it to make it fit like a glove on her. And uh, she just killed it. <laughs> she sung all of these, all the backgrounds. I think the world loved Natalie Cole. We empathized with her. And Reggie, if I've heard great singers in my life, I've heard more than one, but I've never heard one that I could say was much greater than her dad at what he did. He was he was magnificent. Oh, my God. I just saw some stuff on YouTube today uh, to watch him play the piano and to watch him sing and uh, and just to watch him talk. The class was just off the charts. Boy, you're right. You're right. Now, Teddy Pendergrass was another. He was on Columbia Records. And Reggie, I cannot tell you, uh, may God, you know, guard his soul, how many Columbia 12-inch records that I played from Teddy Pendergrass. Get up, get down, get funky, get loose. Only you. Uh, all of this, close the door, turn off the, dim all the lights, all of these songs. But he had originally come out of Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, and he did The Love I Lost and all this other stuff. That's him on the vocal, on The Love I Lost. That's where he came from, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. And then he had... He went out, like so many do, on an original solo career, and look what you did to him on a beautiful single, which I believe was also on CBS, which is Columbia Records, and it was called Joy. Yeah, Joy uh, actually ended up on Electra Records, and uh, as I was saying, uh, Shep also managed Teddy, so when Teddy was uh, building upon his comeback after his accident, you know, it became a natural thing of, you know, what do you, what do you guys have for Teddy? What can we do with, with Teddy? And uh, that was another challenge because all the songs that you named, including uh, Wake Up Everybody, were all sung by this powerhouse, you know, super masculine, macho, uh, love machine. And now uh, being confined to a wheelchair, you know, how does, how does the world see him? How does he see himself? But I tell you, uh, I learned two things really quickly upon going to Philadelphia to meet with Teddy. You know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, Teddy's going to walk one day. He's going to be all right one day. This is just temporary. But when they picked us up from the airport, Vincent and myself, and you saw the van with 
all the apparatuses and the chains and the lifts, and you realize that this is real. You know, this is something that uh, that we can't just fix with a song or a dance. This is this is this is the life that he has uh, had to work with them. So the second thing I learned was this this guy is committed to his craft. He's not letting his handicap or his accident stop him. He's ready to make music and he's ready to make all types of music. Not to mention the ladies still find him quite adorable. Oh, the lady. He was a crooner. The ladies adored him. Yeah, so and it wasn't it, it wasn't just his singing and it wasn't just his six feet frame. They they loved him for him. He was just a he was just a magnetic guy. So even in the chair, he still uh, exuded, you know, all this uh, personality, and 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 luckily, I had already uh, come up with the term joy. Joy, you know, it's it's bigger than happiness. Happiness is for a moment. You know, joy is forever. And so joy will come in the morning. We began to work on a, on a groove and uh, working with another one of my great guys from Cincinnati, Joel Davis. Uh, helped out with this groove and helped write this song and uh, uh, Joe played something for me and I, I said, that's the one. We're going to call it Joy. So from there we were able to uh, you know, finish the rest of the song with the verses and the bridges and, and all those things basically just, just, just upon a groove and what a you know, you know, what a way to to deal with love. You know, to speak of love, not just between a man and a woman, but a love of of the world, a love of oneself, a love of joy. And uh, what what a, what a song, and what a delivery he did from sitting, you know, in a wheelchair, doing a doing an R.B. dance song. <laughs> Incredible. I will say this: the what you had to face ordinarily on any other artist. Is difficult, is difficult enough to get the material, to execute it well, to where the public uh, will buy it. But to add on what you had to go through uh, with Teddy and his situation post-accident, and to get that record as loved as it was, is just another, as far as I'm concerned, feather in the Callaway brothers' hat. And I'll bet you others have told you that. Oh, thank you. Yes, it's been well well received, and uh, you know, most importantly, to develop a friendship with Teddy, who you know, was one of my idols. You know, my vocal idols. You know, uh, to actually work with him and to you know go to his home and you know help help him organize his studio and hear his passion and his dreams about his foundations and uh, you know dictation computers that would now be able to transcribe what he said without having to write it down. You know, to be a part of that and to meet his, his son and, and daughters and mother. And, you know, those are the things that, uh, that are priceless. Okay. Ed, uh, Levert Casanova. There's another one. How did that one get going? Oh man. Well, you know, by this time, uh, there was starting to be a, a buzz, you know, about, about Calvin brothers in terms of producers and got a call from, from Sylvia Rohn at Atlanta records, Atlantic records. And she says, I, I got this young group. I don't, you know, quite what to do with them. You know, they're, uh, the sons of, Two of them are the sons of Eddie Levert. Uh, you know, in fact, the one son, Gerald, sings just like his father. <laughs> so, so what? You know, what? What can you do with them? That uh, immediately became what can you do with them that doesn't sound like they're imitating their father? You know, how can you give them a, a youthful uh, persona of their own? Uh, when we began to work, I looked back at. at uh, I always keep a, a list of songs, and, uh, and and on that list of songs, I usually can sing either the hook or the verse some part of that song that lives in my head just by seeing it written on paper and i had been encouraged to go back through my list that that there was a, a hit song sitting in there that uh, i wasn't utilizing and i said well let me go do that and then i, I ran across casanova on my list i had written casanova as a country western song from riding up and down the highway between Louisville, Kentucky and Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, between my families uh, back and forth and just up those country roads. And then on the tour buses, you know, around the United States, you, you get that open road, you get a country feel <laughs> when you were kind of brought up that way. So what stuck out in my mind was, number one, the concept, you know, for these young guys to be, uh, you know, associated with, with Casanova. And then this melody 
that was so strong and so catchy, but yet so simple. And once again, the the melody and the lyric came first. Now I got to figure out what kind of groove can I put to this song? You know, where's music today? And, uh, I had heard a song by Club Nouveau had done a, a new version of Lean On Me. And that song had the sonics, the openness, the air that I thought this song would, would live in. And then one night, sometime after, I was sleeping and woke me up. I, I heard the beat in my head. And fortunately, I sleep with a, a tape recorder next to me at those times. So two or three in the morning, I rolled over and hit record and hummed this beat into the tape recorder. And then from, from that point, it was on. Now I had a, a sonic sound. I had a melody. I had a beat. So let's 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 go record it. Uh, we rec- we uh, finished the demo in Cincinnati, went to Los Angeles uh, and, and recorded it. Uh, and uh, did a lot of the work in Pasadena in, uh, in California, outside of L.A. So pretty pretty serious use of some, some great musicians, but the idea of that song was to make it as simple as possible. So simple. It's kind of like what Roger was saying about the wider the groove, the deeper the bass. Well, also, the, the, the less instruments, the bigger the sound. And if you notice that that record has this huge sound with the incredible um, bass line performed by another Cincinnati, once again, Joel Davis, uh, great Cincinnati guitar player, Gene Robinson, another great guitar player, Johnny Jones from Cincinnati, uh, and uh, Odin Mays did some other keyboard work along with Joel. So we had the whole Cincinnati, California mix going on, this, this song between the talent-wise. And... Uh, Gerald and the guys, Sean, and they came to uh, Cincinnati to record the vocals. The record company executive came with them and brought them in. And uh, by this time, we had taken over uh, QCA Studios, was now uh, Crystal Clear Sound Studios, which was my family uh, business there and the uh, home operations of Callaway Productions and Calico Productions. And uh, we, we commenced to uh, put the finishing touches on. We did another song for them called uh, Temptation. I asked the uh, A&R guys, I said, what song you think is the, you know, the one that you like the best that we should concentrate on? He said, it's definitely not Casanova. I said, that's going to give the guys their own image in the world. And, and the rest the rest is history. <laughs> that <laughs> Casanova was, it was all over the radio and the clubs in greater Cincinnati. I can only assume that that thing went very well for you nationwide and over in Europe as well. Yeah, in the Netherlands and in France, it's just 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 huge. I mean, there's there's been versions done in in, uh, in both those languages, as well as the English language, and then there's been uh, tons of samples as well. So it's it's been very received, very well received. Well, Reggie, uh, what a career, and I'm still not done with you yet. I promised you that I wasn't going to hold you all day. Uh, we're going to try to stick with my limits because I've got a few minutes left and I saved this song purposely, Reggie, for for the last because this next person I wanted to talk to you about that you produced is, in my estimation, and I believe in the, <laughs> assuming you're of sound mind, if you're in the music business, I believe the word superstar is good enough to describe her without even name. And one, although I like darn near everything she's ever done in her whole entire life, which is a litany of great songs, which will be her legacy she leaves behind. One of the most favorite songs, which I still play. I play it in my car. I play it in my living room. I play it through earphones. I play it any chance I get, and I played it as a DJ, and it was the dear Gladys Knight singing a song that you wrote, and it was called Love Overboard. Now, fill me in on that one. Wow, yes. Thanks for that, that build-up. <laughs> that was incredible. That's the way I feel about my sis. But we were uh, we had done some work with Lil Silas from MCA Records, and he calls me, and he says, he says, Reggie, I need your help. We got this Gladys Knight and the Pips album. It's all done, but but we need we need a single, and, and we're running out of time. So w- whenever I'm looking at an artist and matching a song with them, I, I try to look at their life and 
you know, see if I can find from what what they've been going through, what they're dealing with, and uh, or what their passions are. And uh, you know, I had, I had heard that Gladys was, uh, you know, she loved pretty hard. You know, she she took relationship very seriously, and uh, it had not always served her that that uh, to the perfection of what that could be of, of a lasting one. And uh, you know, somebody who uh, as strong as Gladys, I know they express themselves and they they tell you what's on their mind, but yet they still have the uh, the passion of the, the female passion that uh, you know puts love above perfection and uh, I came up with the concept of love overboard you know somebody who just loves loves a little hard loves out of control but but they're in it to win it <laughs> and once they, again you use that clean production it was easy to mix that song in. Well, I was just talking to one of my, uh, well, you said to mix it in, but I was talking to one of my mix engineers the other day, and he was telling me about this song that we spent seven days mixing, and he said it was Love Overboard. I'm like, well, you know, we were we were operating on while we were mixing it. I mean, that song's got George Duke on acoustic piano, uh, Freddie Washington on bass, you know, just just great, great cats, and uh, you know, mix engineer, Tommy Mote, Craig Burbage, just, just super guys. Uh, so to and so we we we, uh, we cut the demo, you know, very basic demo, and uh, I didn't have all the words finished because it was a time frame. So I had the hook and I hummed the melody of the verse, sent it into Lul at the record company. I said, "Let Gladys hear this. Let me know if she likes it," because they wanted us to fly to Denver, Colorado, to record the song. And I'm like, I I don't want to come. I don't want to. You know, I bet you talk about being scared. I'm like, I need to know if she likes this song before I get on an airplane <laughs> and just show up in Denver in the middle of the night. And uh, I said, in fact, have her call me. And why did I do that? But I wanted to be I wanted to be totally confident. So I get I get this call about 11, 12 o'clock at night, and uh, you know, she says, Hey, hey, baby, it's me, Gladys. <laughs> no my my oh my <laughs> i'm like i'm like what the what, what? you know you sit up on the side of the bed right because mm, mm, trying to get get my head together i said i said i'm sorry glass i just wanted to know if you liked it she says yeah i like it let's go i'm ready to go so um you know vincent and i load up on a plane and fly to Denver, colorado and uh, you know, we go to the studio. It's like a little garage, you know, off in the country somewhere. And I haven't finished the second verse yet. Oh. <laughs> so I'm working on the lyrics to the second verse, and the limousine pulls up with Gladys Knight and the Pips, and they get out and they say, "Y'all ready to go?" Yeah, because they're they're just coming from doing a concert. So Gladys had, had literally done a full concert, at twelve o'clock at night, and I don't have the second verse finished. Oh my. So I'm like, I'm like, hi, Gladys. I said, I'm, I'm going to need just a minute here. I'm still working on a couple of lines. And she says, baby, take your time. Take as much time as you need. I was like, that's the nicest person I ever met in my entire life. What a woman, I'm telling you. What, what to say to somebody? It's just so sweet. I mean, it's so uh, encouraging. So I, I finished it up and I, I handed it to her. She went, because she knew the melody, because I sung the melody. You know, on, on the demo tape, she goes, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and she says, "Just one word. Uh, can we make a change with just one word?" And the word was was loving. She said, "Can we just change it to just love?" Because she didn't want it to be too provocative. She wanted it to be more universal with the love you've been given instead of with the loving you've been given. Yes, yes. I said, "You are exactly right. That's what it should be." Uh, so she said, "I'm ready." We start to tape. She just hums it through one time, you know. Da, da, da. She said, "Okay, now I'm ready for real." She sung "Love, Love Overboard" in one take. One take. One take. Oh my god! After seeing the words. So uh, on my 12 inch, when I listen to Gladys sing "Love Overboard," that's one take. That's one take. And then we came back, you know, did the backgrounds, and then we did uh, a couple of ad libs. Uh, things of that nature, but the but the most the, the bulk of the song and all that just yeah, just one take straight through boom. That is the did I say superstar at the front? I believe you've just defined it, uh, uh, <laughs> Reggie. Yeah, I, I believe you've defined why I said that. But don't forget, uh, you know, all of our audience that, that won a Grammy for R and B vocal performance by duo or group. 
Right. Well, you've been nominated for five of them, haven't you? Yes, and that's that's one of them, and that one won. The, the Grammy goes to the group, and we we get to, you know Grammy recognized certificates and things. But but yeah, all those songs. Uh, Casanova was nominated twice, Song of the Year, and a vocal performance by R&B group. Jumpstart was nominated. Joy was nominated. And uh, yeah, that's this is it. And Love Boy, Love Yeah. So Casanova twice, Love Boy, Joy, and Jumpstart. Right, and there are other acts that you've worked with, and other producers you've you've co- cooperated with uh, that we could get into. I promised you I wasn't going to hold you all day. I know that you're one to get out and give speeches and appear where the artists are to help the young. You've always believed in uh, sharing with the youth and bringing them up in the business. Before I let you go today, Reggie, for the young people that want a career or even the adults, what word of encouragement do you have now having lived through it full circle? It, my encouragement to, to is to first spend however much time you need to spend on understanding what your passion is, what you really want to do. Uh, because until you do that, you know, you're, you're spinning around in circles. But while you're spinning around in circles, you can be getting your education, you know, and all basic things. You know, don't avoid your high school education. Uh, you can get a, a college degree. Anything you want to is going to help you pay you more for life. But before you leave high school, I want you thinking about what is your real passion so that when you get that college degree or that life experience, you're doing it in something that you're going to carry on consistently, potentially forever. So the key is to be consistent. Whenever you stop and pick something else, you're starting over again. The clock doesn't just uh, you know, just continue. The values will continue if you have strong values uh, in the you know, if you've worked hard and you've built up your, your character and your values, then you can transfer that from one business to another. But that's part of uh, your, your training and your development is to get that together. And then just, just don't stop, you know, whether it's uh, whether it's music, be consistently making new music, putting out music, working on your craft, your your, your choreography, your voice, you know, study. We, t- we talked about a few great artists, Natalie Cole. Natalie Cole uh, always had a voice coach, the great Seth Riggs. So great that the Vincent and I studied with Seth Riggs as well. Michael Jackson studied with Seth Riggs. Uh, Michael Jordan had many basketball coaches, you know, a free throw coach, a jump shot coach, a conditioning coach. You know, nobody goes it alone, so get coaching and don't stop. Uh, Vincent and I just wrote a song uh, around election time called Politics. And uh, that was to, cons- you know, uh, to uh, encourage people to exercise their power to vote. Well, in that election, over 150 million people voted. So we'll uh, we'll just say that was one of our biggest songs of all times because 150 million people, if we just be a small part of that, then uh, how rewarding. Uh, we have a new single out, a new solo record out right today that came out last Friday. It's called Sabrina. And it's a romantic fantasy about a uh, an African princess queen meeting a balladeer singer on his travels around the world. So you'll get a really big kick out of that one. And the, the video comes out uh, next week for Sabrina. And I hope you like that one. But the biggest thing that I've uh, been able to do in this part of my career is to become involved in the finance side of the industry. So when we talk about advice, the other part of the advice is to learn the business, you know, study where the uh, income royalty streams come from. So my new company is called Sound Royalties, Sound Royalties. I'm the director of music royalty funding there, and we're able to provide royalty advances for those who are receiving royalty to help them to become uh, more independent by investing in, in themselves and their career. So these are really exciting times, especially for the independent. Anybody can put out a record, but now you have to market, promote it, and uh, you know, and and keep pushing it. So I encourage you all, and I, and I appreciate you today, Rick, for for giving me an opportunity to tell the story. And uh, I'll let you finish closing out now, if you like. Reggie, where can they get and obtain these uh, new these new records or new albums, new singles? Where do they go to get them? Okay, they're they're on all digital outlets. You know, from Apple, Apple Spotify, the title, everywhere that you would go digitally, Amazon. But also, uh, you you can reach me at uh, my website, reggiecalloway.com, and all the music is there as well as you know all of your. Uh, history 
that you've been loving. All the videos, all the songs, right there, ReggieCalloway.com. And uh, we'll have some some great uh, things for you coming up, some great contests, and and stay in touch, all that good stuff. And you can also, uh, you know, get the link to Sound Royalties there if you uh, know someone that would like to get in the royalty advance to, to, you know, broaden their career. Have them reach me there, ReggieCalloway.com or, or at SoundRoyalties.com. Well, Reggie, I, I don't know what else to say other than the fact that you've come full circle in my life. Uh, I remember you years ago, and you're still that mellow, smooth, uh, although, uh, albeit a gentleman that's produced a lot more today than you did when you walked into my studio there with an album called Standing Together by Midnight Star. Although you placed, uh, I've been watching you on the chart back then, boy, you've come a long way and you made Cincinnati proud. Thank you so much, Rick, and Cincinnati. Absolutely. So at this time, why don't we just have you say goodbye, Reggie? Goodbye, Reggie. Oh, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. From Midnight Star, the band. From the Callaways and their single, I Want to Be Rich. From all of the acts that this man has produced successfully, it is Reggie Calloway. Thank you, thank you, thank you. As we get out of here, thank you, everyone. This is Rick Flynn speaking. It's been fun, but I've got to run. And we'll see you the next time. Bye-bye. Take care. The preceding was a Rick Flynn production. This is your announcer, Chantal Marie speaking. Rick Flynn, it has been a ball. It's been fun. Catch you later. Bye-bye.